Chapter One of the Life and Times of Kateri Tekakwitha, the Lily of the Mohawks, by Ellen Walworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One Tekakwitha's Spring. In the valley of the Mohawk, near the present great highways of the state of New York, is a quiet forest nook, where a clear, cold spring gurgles out from the tangled roots of a tree connected with this spring is the story of a short girl life pure vigorous sorrow taught it is written out in authentic documents while nature also has kept a record of an indian maiden's lodge beside the spring there on the banks of the mohawk river at conawaga now called fonda in montgomery county dwelt the lily of the mohawks two centuries ago when the state had neither shape nor name she saw her people build a strong new palisaded village there she saw though at rare intervals the peaceful but adventurous traders of fort orange and the black gowns of new france pass in and out on friendly errands mohegans came there also in her day to lay siege to the village but only to be met with fierce defiance and to be driven back marks of that very indian fort can still be found at fonda where the johnstown railway now branches from the new york central and turns northward along the margin of the cayadutter creek the smoke of the engine as it leaves the town of fonda mounts to the level of a plateau on which the mohawk castle stood the elevated land or river terrace at that point is singularly called the sand flats a rude fort of palisades well equipped for defence was completed about the year sixteen sixty eight on a narrow tongue of this high terrace between the mohawk river and the creek the approach to it is very steep but in one place a wagon road winds up the hill to what is now a field on veter's farm here unmistakable signs of indian occupation are to be found a spring is close at hand in a clump of trees the castle at that spot was known as conawaga meaning at the rapids a name still applied to the eastern part of the present town of fonda the mohawk river runs swiftly as it passes this spot and large stones obstruct its course the spring at the castle site on the west side of the creek is tekakwitha's spring for there beside it she grew to maidenhood behind the shelter of the palisades and beneath the shadow of the overarching forest tekakwitha was the lily of the mohawks and afterwards known as la bonne catherine in the mohawk valley the great artery of our nation's life the tide of human travel now ebbs and flows with ever-swelling force here the new york central railway levels out its course of four broad tracks here the great canal bears heavy burdens east and west here the west shore railway skirts the southern terrace here the mohawk river winds and ripples smiling in an old-time quiet way at these hurrying crowded highways they have well-nigh filled the generous roadway cut through high plateaus and mountain spurs in ages past by this same placid river that was in its younger busier days now it idles on its way from side to side among the flats or bottoms with here and there a rapid 
till at last it gathers force at far Cahoes for one great plunge before it joins the Hudson. Then the mingled waters of the two rivers sweep on past the stately capital where once the Indian trading post, Fort Orange, stood. From Albany, the broad-bosomed Hudson bears floating palaces and long lines of canal boats strung together like great beads of wampum. Let its current move them southward while we turn back to the valley whence these strings of wampum came. Let us follow up the windings of the Mohawk River, westward. At Schenectady it lingers among islands in pretty narrow ways, where college boys can take their sweethearts rowing. Right playfully it kisses the feet of the old Dutch town in summer, and in winter its frozen bosom sounds with the merry thud of the skater's steel. Farther west the valley narrows, and on a height near Hoffman's Ferry, Mohawk and Mohegan fought their last fierce battle. Tekakwitha heard their war-whoop at the castle of Conawaga just before the final conflict came, but she never saw Fort Johnson, which is higher up the river. Old Fort Johnson is too modern for our story. Amsterdam now looms up an important factor in the valley. Two centuries ago a joyous stream cascading down to meet the Mohawk was its only landmark. Tekakwitha knew the spot, however, and had good reason to remember it, as we shall see. Westward still, and up the valley from Fort Johnson, a broader gleam of water comes in sight. It is where the Shohari River creeps in from the south, between the dripping archways of a bridge, over which canal boats pass. Here the Mohawk shows its teeth in a ridge of angry rapids, and here we enter what was once the home country of its people, the fierce Mohawks. We are near the spot where brave Father Isaac Jogues, the discoverer of Lake George, was killed in 1646. In the southwest angle of the Mohawk and Shohari rivers, on the upper terrace, higher than the modern hamlet of Orysville, was the eastern castle of the Mohawks, known to Jogues as Osernanon. Here three times the hero-hearted black gown came, first a mangled, tortured captive, dragging out the weary months in slavery until the Dutchman at Fort Orange ransomed him, next as an ambassador of peace, bearing presents, making treaties, and lastly as envoy of the Prince of Peace, and wedded to his spouse of blood, for so Jogues styled his Mohawk mission. Never was a truer bridegroom, never stranger wedding rites. Bits of his flesh were cut off and devoured, while the savage high priest cried, Let us see if this white flesh is the flesh of an Otcon, spirit or devil. I am but a man like yourselves, said Jogues, though i fear not death nor your tortures his head was placed on the northern palisade looking toward the french frontier and his body thrown into the stream but his blood and his earnest words sank deep into the land and the hearts of its people from jogues mystic union with the mohawk nation trooping from the mission of the martyrs came the christian iroquois 
one of these a bright soul in a dusky setting and a flower that sprang from martyr's blood was tecaquitha she grew up says one who knew her like a lily among thorns ten years after andesonk had shed the last drop of his blood to make these mohawks christians she was born among the people who had seen the black gown die in the village of the turtles some say in the cabin at the door of which the tomahawked priest had fallen this same stronghold of the turtles was rebuilt higher up the river during tecaquitha's lifetime near osernanon the earliest known site of the turtle castle there is a great bend or loop in the mohawk river and valley it extends from the mouth of the shohari river in the east to the nose near yost's and spraker's basin in the west the nose is at a point where river railways and canal are crowded in a narrow pass between two overlapping ridges of high land two mountains approaching or tayanantogan the indians called it and there behind the shelter of the hills they built their largest and best fortified town the mohawk capital or castle of the wolves other villages and their central castle of the bears called andagoran they also built and rebuilt within the great bend at its northern point where the river now flows between the high-perched starin residence and the town of fonda the next important railway station west of amsterdam are the rapids and the large stones in the water which gave rise to the name of conawaga from the hills at fonda one can see for miles both up and down the river here as has already been said just west of fonda on the north side of the mohawk is the indian village site where tecaquitha lived here is the beautiful hill that was once crowned by the palisaded castle of conawaga it is a spot that any one who lived there must have loved today the plough turns up the rich soil where long indian cabins stood and what we see are only darkened patches left to tell us where the hearth fires of the mohawks burned two hundred years ago these patches of dark soil still glisten with the pearly mussel shells brought up by the mohawks to their village from the river that still bears their name the pipe stems sold to them by the dutch are strewn in fragments through the field from graves nearby thrown out on the roadside by the spades of workmen loading their carts with sand the author has seen indian bones more crumbled than the silly beads and rusty scissors buried with them which they bought so dearly in a wood nearby on the brow of a ravine there is a row of hollow corn pits where the conawaga people stored their charred corn low down in the fertile river flats southward from the ancient village site a sunburned farmer owner of both hill and valley still works with horses and with iron implements the very cornfields that the squaws hoed with clumsy bone tools this once castled height breaks abruptly on its eastern side to let the cayaduta creek wind through it hurries by on its way to meet the mohawk and then lags through the flat lost to sight just long enough to pass round the skirts of the taberg or tea mountain 
This is a grassy cone topped with pines, and so named by Dutch settlers, who there in war times made a tea from a wild plant. It partly blocks the entrance to the pretty Cayetote Valley, and separates it from the modern town of Fonda. But the farmer's daughters and the village people who now live in sight of Fonda Courthouse know well the little valley of the Cayadutta. Any of them can point out its brightest gem, the never-failing spring that issues from a setback in the hill, and so regular in shape as to suggest an amphitheatre. This spring wells out from under an old stump hidden in a clump of trees, whose topmost branches are below the level of the castle site. Its waters rest a moment in a little shady pool, a round forest mirror, then brimming over, break away, and wander down the steep descent to the creek. The path to the spring leads downward from the higher ground above it, known as the sand flats. The field where the castle stood is now often planted thick with grain, but when this has been cut and the ground again ploughed, the Indian relics are readily found. At any season of the year, however, the limpid spring that has not ceased to flow for centuries will serve to indicate the spot. Standing then at the brink of this spring in the Mohawk Valley, let the reader cast a look backward and over the intervening space of two hundred years to the days of Tekakwitha. Let it be understood, however, that while the imaginative faculty is thus to be called into play, it is not for the contemplation of an imaginative, but of a real character. For whatever side-lights may color the narrative, they are used to bring out, not to impair, the picture. Many details of time and place, of manners and customs, of dress and the arts of industry, will be woven into an actual scene, rather than given in a tedious enumeration. The scene about to be described, and others which follow depicting the early life of Tekakwitha, are not to be found actually recorded in so many words, in the history of her life and times. Yet they must have occurred, for they are based on the known facts of her life, as related in various official and private documents, together with such inferences only as may fairly and reasonably be drawn from those facts when brought under the strong light of contemporaneous records. Above the spring at Fonda, on the high plateau where is now the well-tilled farm, stood two centuries ago the log-built palisades of ancient Conawaga. In tall and close-set ranks they served to hide from view and shield from ambush the long, low Indian houses twenty-four in number double stockadoed round with four ports as when the traveller greenhall saw the place in sixteen seventy seven and a bow-shot from the river stands the strong mohawk castle the blackened stumps that now dot the sunny hillside of the cayadutta change into the old-time mighty forest and present a scene that is full of life for down a well-worn footpath come the Indian girls to fill their jugs at the spring, afterwards to be known as Tekakwitha's Spring. These dusky Conawaga maidens have the well-known Indian features strongly marked, the high cheekbones, the dull red skin, and soft dark eyes. But Tekakwitha shields hers with her blanket from the light, 
unlike the rest there is an air of thoughtfulness about her and a touch of mystery excessive shyness in the lily of the mohawks is strangely blended with a sympathetic nature and with a quiet force of character she leads their chatter half unconsciously to channels of her own choosing a manuscript of the time says shay describes the indian maiden with her well-oiled and neatly parted hair descending in a long plait behind while a fine chemise was met at the waist by a neat and well-trimmed petticoat reaching to the knee below this was the rich legging and then the well-fitted moccasin the glory of an iroquois bell the neck was loaded with beads while the crimson blanket enveloped the whole form this in general is the costume of the merry group with tecaquitha at the spring the upper garment however is a kind of tunic or simple overdress nor can it be said that all are equally neat in their appearance some have their dark straight hair tied loosely back and hanging down or else with wampum braided in it a few are clothed in foreign stuff bought from the dutch for beaver skins and worn in shapeless pieces hung about them with savage carelessness on their dark arms the sunlight flashes back from heavily beaded wrist and armbands begged or borrowed from their more industrious companions not like theirs is tecaquitha's costume it is made of deer and moose skins all of native make and stitched together by a practised hand as every one of the pretty squaws well knew her needle was a small bone from the ankle of the deer her thread the sinews of the same light-footed animal whose brain she mixed with moss and used to tan the skins and make the soft brown leather which she shaped so deftly into tunic moccasins and leggings her own skirt was scarce so richly worked with quills of the porcupine as that of her adopted sister there beside her though both were made by tecaquitha's hands the indian girls about her like her for her generous nature and her merry witty speeches she makes them laugh right heartily while she stands waiting for her jug to fill up at the trickling spring these daughters of the iroquois are bubbling over with good spirits and their pottery jugs with water when all at once they spy a band of hunters coming homeward down the Cayadote valley from the sacondaga country knowing there is one among them who but waits his chance to lay his wealth of beaver skins at tecaquitha's feet and take her for his wife they turn girl-like to tease her but the quick and timid orphan dreading the license of their tongues has bounded up the hill and hastens to her uncle's cabin with her jug leaving her companions to bandy words with the young hunters as they stop beside the little pool for a draught of refreshing water of all the people in the ancient conawaga village the only story that has been written out in full and handed down in precious manuscript brown with age is the story of her who bounded up the hill and left her comrades at the spring in a double sense she left them she was far above them she stands to-day upon a mystic height and many both of her race and our own in these our days do homage to her memory may her home at conawaga 
high above the stones that lie embedded in the Mohawk River, and close beside the spring that trickles downward to the Cayadutta, soon become familiar ground to all who honor Tekakwitha. End of chapter 1